Our second lesson is taken from the Gospel according to John. Let me begin reading at verse 23 of chapter 2 and then continue into the third chapter. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one hath ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Dr. Lloyd John Ogilvie is the minister of the largest Presbyterian church in all of the United States, which is the first Presbyterian church in Hollywood, California. It's a close second to our Highland Park Presbyterian Church in Dallas. Uh, Dr. Lord John Oglesby is a great preacher of the word. He is an alive and dynamic person whose messages are of great inspiration. Not long ago, I picked up one of his books and I came across something that seems to ring a bell with a lot of people uh, with whom I come in contact. Let me read a statement. It, quote, this is a, a, a prominent churchman speaking uh, with Dr. Ogilvie. If I hear one more inspiring talk about the power of God and the joys of the Christian life without someone telling me simply 
how I may receive this power and get started in this new life, I swear I'll stand up in the next meeting and scream. This was a fine religious churchman who did not know God. He said this to me at the end of a day of meetings at an excellent conference for men sponsored by a major denomination. It had been a long, challenging day. We had heard great preaching, participated in stimulating discussions, and my new friend was stirred and he was disturbed. He had been told about the Holy Spirit and what life could be when, when he empowered a human life, but he had heard enough. He had spiritual and intellectual indigestion. Tell me how was his plea. He needed someone to listen to his needs as a person and to tell him simply how to receive the Holy Spirit and how he could begin a life of fulfillment instead of frustration. Now, I think that what he is saying here, and Dr. Oglesby goes on to explain, is very true of a great many people who are officers and members of prominent churches and who have distinguished academic credentials. It's possible to be a great theologian and not even a Christian at all. It's possible to be a minister and not to be converted. It's possible to make a great sermon and to stir the hearts and minds of people and really not belong to Jesus Christ. And that's why I've elected to take from the Gospel of John some of the great conversations that our Lord Jesus had. As I look back over my life, and I do not say this with any intent itself, uh, praise or flattery, but it's just the providence of God that I happen to be present uh, sometimes where some very interesting people held conversations. And I got to thinking the other night about those times, and you know I was always happiest when I didn't talk any, and I just listened. I remember being out in India one time years ago, and Henry Luce, the editor of Time and Life magazine, was present. The minister of Mr. Nehru's cabinet, uh, the health minister, was a Christian. And we had been invited there for, Dr. Billy Graham had been invited there for dinner, and I was assisting him, and so I simply went. And I listened to Dr. Graham and Henry Luce and, the, and Mr. Nehru's minister speaking. And I was greatly impressed with the conversation that took place. And as I looked at Henry Luce, I could see the intense way in which he talked about faith in Jesus Christ. And especially his interest in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the questions that he asked about it, he had talked about the Sikhs, he talked about the uh, diets and the uh, problems that existed in India. But really, when he got onto faith in Christ, there seemed to be a glow in his eyes and a great interest in his face and a great hunger. And I watched. I can remember other times when I sat in the bedroom of the president in the White House in Washington. I didn't say anything. I just sat there and listened as he talked with some of his advisors. I was afraid to say anything. I didn't know if it was a secret and, <laughs> and you weren't supposed to say anything about it. But it was fascinating to listen to these great people talk and to hear the things that they said. And uh, to recall uh, some of the things that took place is still fascinating to me now. I remember one night being in New York in a studio when I saw Billy Graham and Jack Parr behind stage talking. And, one of the directors of the program had some liquor advertisement that was to come on, and Jack Parr got in a fuss with him about it and said, get that thing away from Billy Graham. <laughs> He's fixing to come on the program. I don't want this all over the country. And I saw these little things take place, and the conversations fascinated me. 
And then there have been conversations that were not with any august or great or famous people, but with simple people who loved the Lord, who were carpenters or plumbers or ditch diggers or musicians or teachers or whatever you please, whose love for Jesus shone through and who illuminated my heart more. But if I could wipe out all of the conversations I ever heard, I'd gladly do so if I had to pay such a price as never having heard some of the conversations that exist in the Gospel of John. I'll probably never go back to the White House again. I'll never be back uh, probably in India in the, in, a minister's, in the cabinet minister's home. These places won't come back and that doesn't matter. But what is available to you and to me and to all of us is the conversations that Jesus Christ held. And the Apostle John is especially interested in relating to us these things for a purpose. The purpose is to share with you the whole purpose for which the Gospel of John was written. He wants us to know it, and so right at the end of his book, he tells us very plainly that these things, he says here, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why he put his book together. And when he put his book together, he selected certain signs that Jesus performed. You can pick out seven great signs, and then a conversation usually follows it. And so I want to take some of the great conversations of Jesus, We've just read how that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. John wants you to know that Jesus is unique, that He is the Son of God, and that the only way in which you will ever know God is to know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's from the first page to the last of the Gospel of John. You may accept it or you may reject it, but you are not at liberty to modify what it says. And this is John's plain teaching. So when John begins to teach these great things to us, John is quick to point out some remarkable things about Jesus as the Messiah. And he points out some remarkable things about the one who came to prepare the way for him, even John the Baptist, he came clearing out everything so that the Lord Jesus would, would enter into his own great claims. Now we are told in the first and second chapters of John that there came a deputation, a, an inquiry from the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, the strictest sect, to try to find out from John the Baptist who he really was. Now I suppose that Nicodemus may have been one of that group who went to hear John the Baptist. And maybe they heard this fiery, ascetic preacher, and, and Nicodemus said to him, Are you Christ? And John said, No, I'm not. They said, Are you the prophet? John said, No, I'm not. They said, Who are you? And John, in the greatest humility, said, I am a voice. I am a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. A voice. That's the heroism of self-effacement. He said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And then when we come into the end of the second chapter of the Gospel of John, we see something of our Lord Jesus' keen insight into human nature. 
And then we come right in to one of the most important of all of the chapters in all of the Bible, the one that brings the answer to the businessman in Hollywood who spoke to John Ogilvy. Here we find our Lord Jesus approached by this man Nicodemus. He is not just any man. He is a member of the Sanhedrin, the great council that ruled over Jerusalem. He is called the teacher of Israel, not a teacher. The, the article is definite, the teacher of Israel. He was a person of great authority as a theologian, of great prominence as a political figure, and he comes into Jesus' presence. He comes under the cloak of darkness because the pressures of his sect are great. He comes to Jesus in an interesting way, and I've often thought of this here, our Lord Jesus is an itinerant preacher who has not where to lay his head. What do they know about him, the carpenter of Nazareth? He had never been to any of the great rabbinical schools. And yet here, this most eminent authority seeks out Jesus at night. And he approaches him recognizing something special is happening from God. There had been this great moving among the people that John the Baptist had precipitated as the Spirit worked through him. And so Nicodemus had been attracted to that and John kept pointing beyond himself and pointing toward Jesus. And so Nicodemus comes. Even though he's a church member, that's not enough. Even though he's a theologian, that's not enough. Even though he is a good man, that's not enough. You'll never get into heaven without a certain humility. Without a certain humility. Samuel Rutherford wrote a letter to Lord Kinmore in which he said to him, Sire, I ever saw in you a high and haughty spirit. He said, stoop low, my brother, for God's sake, stoop low, for the gate into heaven is a low gate. Well, Nicodemus comes, and when he speaks to Jesus, he speaks in words uh, that are beautiful. He says to him, we know, and his term here uh, about rabbi is a term of endearment, my dear rabbi. This old white-haired man says, my dear rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. That's all he could say at this point. We know that you're a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles, these signs, is John's favorite word, that you're doing unless God is with him. He recognizes in Jesus something special. And then after that recognition, he begins to make a response he moves, even though he comes at night, he comes and talks with Jesus. I've often wondered how we ever got this record of this conversation. I don't think any of the other disciples were present. I don't think uh, James or John or Andrew or Philip or Thomas or any of them were present. I think that a man of Nicodemus' stature and dignity would have sought Jesus out alone for a private consultation with him. And so the question naturally arises, where did 
John, the writer of this record of the gospel, get his information? Did he get it from Nicodemus? Or did he get it from Jesus himself? Perhaps he got it from both of them. I rather think Jesus reported it to him because of what stress, and then because of what we'll see later in Nicodemus' life, I think Nicodemus must have filled in some things too, and the Holy Spirit supervised it all. Well, at any rate, the conversation begins. We know you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles, these signs that you're doing unless God is with him. And then the old man is taken back when Jesus says to him, he knows that he wants to discuss the kingdom of God, that is, the reign of God over a man's life, that verse that we sing sometimes in church, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Tell me, with God Almighty as your witness, could you say this morning, I am truly seeking first the kingdom of God. I want God's reign over my life above everything else. I'm willing to sell all that I have to go buy the pearl of great price. That's what Jesus says it takes. Seek ye first. The kingdom of God is not a suggestion that we're to toy with in our holier moments. But it's a commandment. And this man is interested in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is. And so he comes to Jesus with his inquiry and Jesus tells Nicodemus flatly, Unless he is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. He can't even see it. Now, to see means to know. When, I, when someone is trying to explain something to me and finally the light dawns, I say, I see it. That means I know what they're talking about. Well, Jesus wants this man to know that he cannot know what the kingdom of God is, what the reign of God is over a human life, until he is born anew, born again. There is a recognition of his need. There is the response of this man. What does he say? He says, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter back into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Now that shows that Nicodemus knew that he wasn't speaking of anything literal. And then Jesus amplifies for him. He wants him to understand what he means. So Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and the Spirit. Water would recall for Nicodemus the baptism that John performed. Water would recall all of the ablutions that Jewish people went through in their effort for cleanness. Water is a simple agent of cleansing. There are good cases that you can make for immersion. There are good cases that you can make for anointing or sprinkling. I don't believe there's a drop of water in the sixth chapter of Romans. I believe I can argue with anyone about it if you want to argue, but I prefer not to. I prefer that it be done with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And unless it's an outward sign of an inward grace, 
you can drink the Jordan and it won't do you any good. Uh, I have one friend who was baptized in the Jordan about three times. He's worse than Naaman. Uh, but it, you, can, you, can, you cannot get to heaven on water. That won't do it. Um, born of water here simply indicates that one is willing to admit his need, to recognize his need and to respond, to respond even though he be a sophisticated, elite theologian of the class of Nicodemus. And I rather expect that this was repugnant to Nicodemus to think that he would have to do that. But yet it was there. He needed to recognize his own need. We had some good Baptists out in Texas who uh, believe in baptizing in water, and one of our great uh, figures in Texas history came from Tennessee out there named Sam Houston. When he was baptized, he forgot to take his pocketbook out, and someone asked him if they wanted him to hold it, and he said, no, I want my money baptized too. And uh, our treasurer would appreciate that. So <laughs> the, the water is there. But water is only an outward sign of something that's to take place inside of an inward need. The big emphasis is placed on water and the Spirit. Here the Spirit is the revealer of the truth of God to us in the energizer. The marvelous thing about the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not only uh, what Jesus... You know the word Spirit and the word wind and the word breath are all three the same... Uh, in the language that Jesus spoke. The Sirocco was a desert wind. Breath is what leaves a person. When I've seen them die, they breathe no more, and their breath has ceased, and they are gone. The breath of the Spirit of God. The wind of the Spirit of God. Well, Jesus says you can't tell where the wind is coming from and where the wind is going, and you cannot box the Holy Spirit. He'll work in and through those whom he pleases to work in. And this is what he wants Nicodemus to know, that he and his Pharisees might have gone out with their inquiry into John the Baptist's teaching and rejected John the Baptist, but that God Almighty is sovereign and that his Spirit works with, in, and how he so directs and chooses. Listen to the wind, he says to Nicodemus. Listen to the wind. You can't tell where it comes from, and you can't tell where it's going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. Nicodemus asked what a great many people ask. How can these things be? There is a mystery. There is a mystery here. Always there is a mystery in conversion. Last Wednesday in chapel, we had a young man who stood right here where I'm standing, from England, Alan Perry, who had been addicted to heroin, who had collapsed the veins in his arms by the constant use of heroin, and finally had to resort to inserting needles in his fingertips until gangrene infected one hand and he had the stump of a finger here where one was amputated. By the grace of God, for over 14 months, he has been free from heroin. 
The man who presented him to us concluded his introduction by saying that he was not introducing to us an ex-addict, but he said, I'm introducing to you a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be born of the Spirit. And that's not just for heroin addicts and robbers, but it's for theologians and learned people in the church like Nicodemus too who think that they're so respectable that they don't need to join that motley crowd who would have been baptized by John. But Jesus wishes him to know that he must. And so there is a response. And the response reads, leads him to receive. Jesus goes on to speak about a serpent in the wilderness. And if you read Numbers chapter 21, you'll read how that when the children of Israel were in the wilderness experience, they were dying from the fiery bites of serpents. And how that God spoke to Moses that one of those serpents was to be taken, that a serpent was to be made of brass and put on a banner staff, which is like a cross, and lifted up. And those who looked to it would live. I'm sure there were a lot of people who must have laughed at those who resorted to that. But those who looked lived. Jesus uses this analogy here likens it unto himself and says that he himself will be nailed to a cross and lifted up. And that cross is the way by which we may be forgiven of all our sins and by which we may be saved. We recognize our need. We respond. We receive a crucified Lord as the one who has made the atonement of our sins and who has entered into our lives. I remember once being in Brazzaville, out in what was then the Belgian Congo. We were going to go, Leighton Ford and I, over to Khartoum. And one of the reasons we were interested in Khartoum is that both of us had studied General Gordon, the great Christian general. The verse that made history with him and caused that man to be converted was the same verse that Dr. Bell gave down here the last night of his life to a group of people who had attended a missions conference. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. And so we are to receive Christ. Nicodemus had to learn this. Did Nicodemus learn it? If you read on about Nicodemus, and we're told about him in John chapter 7, there came a time when the, when the Sanhedrin were meeting. They had sent the temple priest to go and arrest Jesus and if you remember, they came back saying that they couldn't arrest him. And, and the authorities said, why? And they said, why? We never heard a man speak like this man speaks. And then Nicodemus, when Jesus was about to be condemned, spoke up. And though it was a timid thing that he said, and disappointing to some of us, it ought to give us courage to see what happens. He didn't speak boldly enough for the Lord. He said, does our law judge a man without hearing him first? We don't judge a man this way. And then you remember how that when Jesus was put to death, Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple, and Nicodemus came to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. They begged for the body of Jesus, and it was taken and lain in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus was faithful. I think he was born again. 
It didn't occur just in a twinkling of an eye. It didn't occur in a moment. But the main thing is it occurred. It doesn't matter whether the light suddenly comes into the room or whether it suffuses a room slowly. The main thing is that the light comes. And the main thing is the new birth means that we are born again with eyes that are tuned to see spiritual truths, ears that are listening for a spiritual word, and hearts that are obedient to the lordship of Christ in our life, that he makes the difference in our decisions. How many times I talked with Bill Wilson the other day, Dr. William P. Wilson down at Duke when I was there, uh, when Leighton Ford's son was operated on. And Dr. Wilson has, by the way, he has written some very uh, learned papers on the dynamics of Christian conversion. He himself was converted to Christ after he had distinguished himself as a great university professor. And then in simple faith, he became a born-again believer. Those are his words, not mine. He came up to the room where we were, and I took some of his papers back and gave them to a psychiatrist friend of mine. Last Thursday afternoon, we were discussing the papers. And he was telling me how this man had taken the truths of the Christian faith and applied them in psychotherapy. The new birth, the new birth is what is needed. We recognize our need, we respond, we open the door of our hearts and receive Christ in and he becomes Lord. And then there's a blessed release when he is Lord of our lives, really and truly Lord of our lives. What a difference it makes when we're responsible to him. We're like the man who sold it all and bought that field, got that treasure. We yield to him. May I conclude by telling you a very interesting conversation that I had with Dr. Walter Courtney. Dr. Courtney is the minister emeritus of the First Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd heard this story secondhand, and I didn't know if it was true, so I wanted to check it out. I asked Dr. Courtney how he was converted. He told me that he had had a favorite brother who had been killed in World War I. This had sort of disillusioned him because he had prayed for his brother's safe return, and his brother didn't return. He died in the war. Then he had a lovely sister who had died, and this embittered him. He did not believe in God, and he shut God out of his life. But then at the school that he attended, the college, there was a very beautiful girl who was a radiant Christian. He wanted to date this girl, and the only way he could get a date with her was to go where the gospel group that she sang with sung on Sunday afternoons. He had a good voice, so he got into the group. And then one day, when he was at a certain church, someone called on him to give his testimony. He said he thought to himself that he would just lie and make up stories like he had heard everyone else tell him. He got right in the middle of his own lie and broke down crying and said to the people present, 
that it was not true. He was not a Christian. But would they pray for him so that Jesus would become Lord of his life? They did, and he did. <laughs> and Jesus became Lord of his life. And it's a great testimony. I hope you can talk with Dr. Courtney sometime. And if you've never really recognized and responded and received Jesus Christ, then why don't you just let go and let it happen? <laughs> and let him take charge of your life by giving yourself to him. You can do that today. Our Heavenly Father, we bless you for your servant John. We thank you for the Holy Spirit's guidance over his life. We thank you for our loving Lord Jesus Christ and for the way in which he spoke to all classes and sorts of people and met their deepest need. As Lord of their life, may now just open the door of their hearts and simply take him at his word. We thank you that he said, Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out, and that we can trust that promise, and we can accept him on the basis of his word, feeling or no feeling. We pray, Father, that you will lead us to make some outward testimony of our faithfulness to him and to show to others that our lives truly belong to him. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit and pray that he may guide us from this place of worship and so govern all our lives that they may be brought into greater conformity with your will and bring great glory to your name. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with you all, now and forevermore.